Today is Sunday, September 30th, and this is Celtics Beat on the CLNS Media Network, the leading online provider of audio-video coverage of the Boston Celtics. I'm Adam Kaufman, and episode 282 featuring former Celtics guard Kenny Anderson is brought to you by Calm Bomb. Right now, my listeners, for a limited time, can get Calm Bombs at a huge discount by going to their website, buybombshelpmoms.com, and clicking on the Indiegogo page. Today's show also brought to you by Boston Barber and Tattoo Company. Every neighborhood has a heartbeat, a place that represents the cultural epicenter of the area at its core. In Boston's historic North End, that place is Boston Barber and Tattoo Company. Boston Barber and Tattoo Company has become home to A-list Boston celebrities like Gordon Hayward, Brad Marchand, and Aaron Baines. Boston Barber and Tattoo is more than just Boston's most well-known corner barber shop. It's also a tourist attraction for the hundreds of thousands of people who visit the North End throughout the year. Boston Barber and Tattoo, a North End landmark, located at 113 Salem Street. What's up? Welcome in. And how nice, how nice is it to see guys running around on a basketball court in games, even if they don't matter? Preseason is underway. Training camp is underway. Media day is behind us. We are hearing from guys constantly on this Celtics team, and expectations continue to be very very high. Welcome in. Thanks again for joining us as always. Just as I tell you, subscribe on iTunes to Celtics Beat. Leave a comment, five stars if you're feeling generous, whatever it is, and give me a follow at Adam M. Kaufman. Always up for interacting on Twitter as you likely know by now. This is going to be a very special show for a variety of reasons. As I mentioned off the top, former Celtic of five years, Kenny Anderson, he's going to join me coming up in just a few minutes to talk about this year's team, expectations, his time with Boston, and what has been, if you don't know the backstory of Kenny Anderson's life and just how fascinating a figure he is and what it has been growing up into when he was playing and what he accomplished in the league to then most especially in retirement. The ups, the downs, how he has really just recreated himself and finds himself now in coaching. So you're going to get to know Kenny Anderson quite a bit better as well while getting his thoughts on the league today and of course these seas. But before we get to Kenny, and again we'll do that coming up momentarily, there was a lot of great sound to come out of the past few days since the start of media day and we've been hearing from everybody and and I wish I could give you everything and go over all of the noteworthy things that have come out but there's nothing overly pressing short of saying Kyrie Irving seems to really really want to stay in Boston he went from going all summer to basically not touching the subject and borderline sounding annoyed by it to now he can't say enough about a future in Boston. And I think of all the different places he's spoken, he went on ESPN, he went on the jump, spoke with Rachel Nichols, Gordon Hayward was in that interview as well. And this to me was is really the best comment we've heard from Kyrie as far as an interest in sticking around in Boston. It's really not that complicated. Just look at all the talent. Who wouldn't want to be part of that, honestly? Because the future is very, very bright in Boston. And... Um, you know, even if I ever tried to think about that thought of going elsewhere, it'd be like, what are you thinking? We're, we're pretty effing good here. <laughs> like, we're pretty effing good for not just this year, but for years to come. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That is the case, obviously, in Boston when you have Irving 
Hayward, Al Horford, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and of course, I mean, that's that's your group of starters, but then you look at Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier, Marcus Morris, at least right now, those two probably won't be around for the long term, and there's, there's so many other guys. I don't want to disrespect the likes of Aaron Baines and Daniel Tyson, on and on, but there's a core. There's a lot of talent when it comes to the green, and you can say that the Raptors are going to be challenging if Kawhi Leonard goes out and does what people think he's going to do if he's healthy. The Raptors, you got to take them seriously. The Sixers, you do have to take them seriously. Young talent, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and if Markel Fultz turns into the player that most feel he will, having gone number one in just last year's draft. The Cavaliers not on that list with LeBron James, a member of the Lakers now, and yet Tristan Thompson still seems to think they should be. We're still four-time Eastern Conference champions. Until you take us down from that, teams ain't got much to say. Boston, Philly, they ain't got much to say. Boston had home court game seven, lost. Philly, you guys almost got swept. Toronto, you really know that story. (laughs) How great is that laugh? Kawhi Leonard thinks Tristan Thompson's adorable. I heard that and I thought to myself, oh my God, nobody told him. Nobody told him LeBron's not there. He must be just thinking he's taken a couple extra days, hasn't shown up to camp yet. Just walking around trying to find the guy. Nope. Nope. Sorry, Tristan. It's that's that's delusional. It's an ignorant comment. You have the 26th best chance, according to Bavada, of winning the NBA championship this year. That's out of 30 teams. So, yeah, I mean, what you said is not inaccurate in the sense that you have been to the Eastern Conference Finals, NBA Finals, four straight times. But uh, that's going to come to an end. Don't be surprised if the Cavs... Don't even make the playoffs this year. But I I respect the confidence. I do respect the confidence. I like the fact that Marcus Morris quickly went on Twitter after hearing the comments, laughed at them, and said, ain't nothing running through Cleveland this year and get ready for an early vacation. In order to look ahead, you got to look back, right? Will Smith. Will Smith once said in one of his songs, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Something like that anyway. But I think it's I think it's a nice message, and I had an opportunity to shout out Will Smith, and that does not happen often on this podcast. But Gordon Hayward, he went on another podcast, the Barstool Pardon My Take podcast, and said something really interesting, really just human, really revealing in a sense. Not in, a, not in the way that I've people all over my Twitter feed have been judging the hell out of the guy, but just raw emotion that you don't typically hear from athletes when he was asked by, I think it was Big Cat, how just what he was feeling last year early on when he suffered that injury and the team reels off 16 straight wins. You know, didn't you get a little upset, a little hurt by the fact that you weren't needed? I don't think you'd be human if there wasn't a part of you that was like, I hope that we lose. Right. It's the competitive nature in you. Uh-huh. Yeah, 100%. I, And I feel like it's, un- it, like, it's crazy to not be able to say that out loud. I know you're obviously rooting for your teammates. You want them to win, but there's a part of you that always wants to be part of the winning team. Yeah, yeah I think so that happened to two at the very beginning of the season. I got hurt. I think we lost our first two games, but then we went on like a 18 or 19 game win streak. Mm-hmm. And I was like laying in bed like, come on. Like, what, what's going on? <laughs> right. Like, there was a part of me that's like, dude, they're winning without me. Like, what's the deal? But then, you know, there's another side that you're like, okay, this is why I came to Boston. We're going to be good. We're going to have a chance to win the whole thing. Like, really you're rooting for them. You, you know that these are your teammates. You know, so you got like two conflicting things going on at the same time. I know some people have been going after Gordon Hayward for those remarks. Say, wait, what kind of teammate are you? You're rooting for your guys to lose. You got to remember a variety of things. And I'll hit on this just very quickly. One of them, he had been here for 
It literally played for five minutes. He had been here for what felt like five minutes. He wasn't really probably feeling like he was a part of the Boston Celtics. Like if that happened his last year in Utah, maybe he doesn't experience the same emotion because he knows everything about the organization and those guys that are around him, and it feels like a family. When he arrived in Boston, it didn't feel like a family for Gordon Hayward. It felt like a new team with a bunch of people short of Brad Stevens that he had to get to know. And and Kyrie Irving, obviously, he's got a history with as well. But for the most part, it's a bunch of new dudes who, all of a sudden, he didn't feel all that needed. And I just think it was, it was a very relatable, honest comment that I'm not going to beat him up for. I think it was really interesting. I'm glad that he said it. And I think most people, even if they wouldn't echo those sentiments, verbally would feel that way. I think many of his teammates would feel that way. So I don't think anyone in hearing that, not that they've been asked about it, would be offended by those remarks. The only other thing that I want to quickly mix in before we get to Kenny, and it somewhat relates to some of what we will get into with Kenny, is is the fact that, you know, Marcus Smart, and I haven't had the chance to touch on this on this show, tragically lost his mom to cancer. He had 14 years ago, lost his brother to cancer. It's just, it's, he's had a very tough life for a guy who's 24 years old. Effectively, he's just a kid. He's been asked about it a lot, and he's been very well-spoken on the topic. I don't know how I would do, probably not nearly as well. He's so mentally tough. And he was asked, and I just thought this was such a great, powerful statement, why it is that he plays every day, every game, like it's his last. I look at basketball as like a storm. But it's the eye of the storm, you know, and it's a tornado or something like that. The calmest place of it is to be right in the middle, the eye of it. And that's what basketball is for me. It's my eye. While everything else around me is going on, the destruction and things like that, basketball keeps me calm. That's probably why I go out and, you know, you see me dive on the floor or (laughs) take a charge or throw my body this way and give it everything I have because I know and I understand that any day could be my last day. And if it was, would I be proud of what I've accomplished in that time here? God has blessed me with an ability to go out there and play the game that I love to play. And I don't want to, you know, make him regret that or feel any regret about it. So I go out there every day and play like it's my last. It's such a great comment. Honestly, words to live by. And no matter what walk of life, what you do for a living, how you carry yourself, you should. I'm not going to preach here. and I'll leave that to other people. But I just think it it was a comment that struck me. I know it struck a lot of other people. And uh, I think in some way, shape, or form, others can, uh, not unlike Gordon Hayward's emotions, can relate to some of these emotions as well. But let's focus a little bit more on basketball and to do it, in a very unique way, I think, compared to how some of the other shows are talking right now and just sort of recapping and previewing. And, you know, we're going to get a different guy's perspective, a guy that knows what it's like to go through all of this, a guy that played for the Boston Celtics, okay? I'm pretty excited about it. Kenny Anderson, retired NBA vet of 14 seasons, five with the Celtics, one of nine teams that he played for. And uh, that window, 1998 through 2002, I'm not just saying this because he's here. I was a big fan of Kenny Anderson watching him play, especially during that time in Boston. That run to the conference finals, all of it. We're going to touch on all of it. Kenny, how's it going? Going well, my man. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. I appreciate you coming on. Now, uh, you occasionally, even still, you'll tweet out pictures of yourself in Celts gear. You did it the other day, actually. You sent supportive tweets of the Seas. How close do you still feel to this organization, almost 20 years removed from spending your time here? Uh, pretty close. You know, so what, uh, Jeff Twist is there. He's been there for 35 years. Um, the media guy, uh, he's been there. He's always keep me in touch with everything, send me mail. Uh, about the team and and, and, the, and, the, and the direction they're going in, 
Johnny Joe, the equipment manager, was there. He's still there. Sure. So they send me a box of stuff every year. <laughs> so, you know, when I go on tickets, uh, you know, they take care of me on tickets. So it's been, it's been, I don't know the new owners. And, you know, you know, I played against Danny Ainge, but I don't know him that well. Um, don't know the coach. So none of the play, all the players are young. They wouldn't know me, you know. Uh, so I, I, I just support uh the Celtics, mainly because, you know, I had some great times there. But also, it's a lot of tradition, you know, when you play for the Celtics. And I played for five. I didn't play for a year. I played for five years and went to the Eastern Conference uh, Championship. Yeah. I met a lot of people in Boston. I had a great time there. Relationships was built. And, um, you know, so I feel, you know, that, that that's, you know, the New Jersey Nets five years, Boston Celtics five years. Those are the bulk years of my career, playing 35-plus minutes. You know, put my handprint, you know, on those teams. So, you know, that it, it's it's always going to be in my heart. Must be pretty happy you forced your way there after refusing to play for Toronto, huh? Yeah, somewhat. And people really don't know why I didn't play for Toronto. It wasn't a basketball issue; it was a tax issue. And hmm. I didn't. I would have paid an extra amount of money and only had a half a season. So I was like, I don't want to go to uh, Toronto right now because of the tax purposes. But I'm glad I I I I, I, I stayed pat. And, you know, Rick Pitino, who who resigned, but he was one of the reasons he, he got me to Boston. So I was closer to my mother and, and my family, being that I'm from New York, playing with a traditional, you know, organization, the Celtics. So I was I was a, I was a, I was thrilled about coming to Boston. You got to know Rick Pitino, not the most popular figure in Boston. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, emotions on the sleeve day. He had a lot of pressure on him to turn the program around. They wanted to get Tim Duncan that year. They didn't. So everything was changed. But he's mm. a hell of a coach between the lines. Um, I had a great time with him. You know, even though we didn't win under him, we won with Jim O'Brien. Mm. But uh, he's a he's a great coach. Just a quick time out to tell you today's show brought to you by Calm Bomb, the newest innovation in relaxation. Do you suffer from chronic pain or anxiety? You want to take your R&R to the next level? Well, try out a Calm Bomb today. How's it different from other bath bombs? Well, first, it's made with a patented cannabis oil, which allows the skin to better absorb the CBS. Offers maximum relief to people with chronic pain and anxiety. The high-quality CBD opens up your pores for maximum absorption. They're 100% vegan, organic, cruelty-free bath bombs made right here in Boston. Another good thing about Calm Bombs, $5 of your purchase goes directly to families in need. Calm Bombs starting a revolution in relief. Its revolutionary formula ensures the CBD is fully absorbed and every box sold helps struggling moms by donating $5 to charity. CalmBomb is now searching for crowdfunding partners. The donations inexpensive and the rewards long-lasting. Now for a limited time, my listeners can get CalmBombs at a huge discount by going to buybombshelpmoms.com and clicking on the Indiegogo page. All right, let's get back to the show. What was that 2002 run to the East Finals like? I mean, so different, obviously, from the championship-level expectations that these current Celtics have. Yeah. You guys weren't supposed to do what you did, which in some ways probably made it all the sweeter. Yeah, that's why it was the sweet. You know, we, we, we had uh, Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker, and a veteran guard like myself. You know, um, we, we, we wasn't it was, – people was like, ah, we don't know what they're going to do. And we wound up being the third seed. In the, in the Eastern Conference, one of the top defensive teams in the in the league that year. And we had a great supporting cast for Antoine and Paul, Eric Williams, um, uh, Tony Dell, um, 
you know, Rodney Rogers and we did Jim O'Brien was a calm and influence on the whole team. He's very, you know, I think a voice change was, was necessary, you know, and then that's what happened. Everybody came, you know, cause once they fire a coach or a coach resign, mm. now the pressure is all on the players. And that's what we did. We went out, we banned uh, among each other and just played extremely hard. We had Eric Strickland, who was a defensive type of guy. Uh, he did, he had a great year. So everything worked out for us that year. You know, too bad, you know, we, we, we lost to the Nets in the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, that year we was pretty, pretty uh, – we thought we was going to beat them. And I think we took it lightly because during the season we had we had uh, took the, the series from them in the regular season. We just thought we was going to go in there and beat them again. So what was that mentality like? Because, like, I mean, do you – I could see how subconsciously, obviously, you can go in and, and kind of take an opponent for granted that you had success against during the regular season. Yeah. But when the playoffs yeah. roll around, I, I don't know, does it does it come upon the coach or the vets in the room, the leaders, to sort of refocus everybody? How does that happen where, where you sort of lose yourself a little bit? I think the coach, we all got to refocus. But I, I was like, wow. When, we, when I saw it and we got past Philly, we, we did our thing in the playoffs, I was like, I'm on, we wound up going to the finals. Hmm. I thought we was going to go to the finals. So I just thought we were going to win that series. I, you know, I just everything was clicking for us. Um, but they, they stepped it up a notch. Um, it's for everybody to get locked in, the coaches, the players, and everything. But, you know, we fell short, and then they went on to the finals, and I think they got swept by Kobe and Shaq in them. Hmm. So I, I, just, I just thought we was going to win it. How would you guys have done against Kobe and Shaq? I'm not sure. The way we played was kind of different than the Nets played. We ran, we shot, uh, you know, the three ball a lot, yeah. Antoine and Paul, and we played pretty good team defense. We we, we made the game ugly, you know. And try, <laughs> we tried to make the game ugly on defense and then get Paul and Antoine. They shot a lot of the basketballs, but everybody else did their did their part. Um, I don't know. You could, you know, Shaq would have been the X factor, I think, in that series. I think Kobe um, would have, you know, Paul and Paul and Kobe would have pushed each other, and um, Antoine, you know, would have got his. And um, you know, I just think that the, the, the problem would have probably been offended Shaq. We got a question from a listener, and it it's fitting because some of the names you already mentioned from Frosty Bias on Twitter. Should Tony Delk have replaced Eric Strickland in the rotation when he came over in that Rodney Rogers trade? Did that mess with team chemistry at all during the run? No, because it's two different type of players. Jim O'Brien was defensive-minded. We knew where the ball was going offensively. So, Tony Delt was a firecracker off the bench. So, he could give us, you know, firepower, you know, coming in and, 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 and score. Eric Strickland was strictly out there to play defense and mix it up. And that's what he did. I thought it was a good compliment. In playing with Paul Pierce, because like I said, 98 through 2002. So, you were kind of there through... The early years of Paul, obviously, into sort of just the beginning of that prime. What was that like watching Paul Pierce alongside Antoine, obviously, come into his own? Could you tell early on that he was going to be the kind of guy that he was that, obviously, the Celtics just retired his number? Yeah, I did. That's my rook. Every time I see him All-Star Weekend, that's my rook. So, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I let Paul Pierce is my rook. He knows that. He's listening. But he's a great guy, great career. Um they came in the lead and chip on the shoulder because I sat in on the lottery uh, when we made, when we when we got the lottery that year. It was mm. in the caucus, you know, and he went number 10. So um, uh, Rick Pitino thought I'd be good luck. So I, I went to the lottery and we got the number 10 pick. And um, <laughs> he came in and he was kind of, you know, bummed, chip on the shoulder. He should have went higher. 
uh, and probably so, but he was a worker. He's a gym rat, practiced hard, you know, a great teammate, you know, um, did what he had to do. And, um, you know, um, it, it showed. And, um, man, he, he was the cornerstone for the Celtics. He went with some down years, and they, the new owners came in, and, you know, uh, they brought Doc in, and, and um, they never got rid of Paul. They kept Paul there and then built around him what was just, you know, what was awesome. So when I saw his jersey being retired, I told my son, we was lying, I said, yo, that's my rook, and that was a <laughs> hell of a basketball player. And I, I'm honored to say I played, uh, played with him. So it was, just, it was just, you know, when I saw that, it was awesome. What do you think Paul took from you at a young age? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I, you know, I, 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 we joked around a lot on the bus and in, and in practice. Uh, you know, he, he was just a great player. He worked hard, so deliberate. Just, you know, so deliberate. He really, you would think he's slow, but he's, 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 he's fast enough. He got great footwork, you know, and he's pretty big up top. So he's very strong, great finisher. But uh, I, I think if I had to pinpoint anything, it, him and Kobe Bryant got great footwork, you know, and that's what he, he was very uh, – he's able to get his shot off. I want to talk a lot more about you and your story as we go along kind of throughout this conversation. But let's let's chat a little bit about this year's Celtics and just how much do you like this group? The expectations are so high. There's so much talent. We see the picture floating around now, the perceived starting five, and it will be the starting five, Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford. I mean, this is a, it's not the Warriors, but it's a powerhouse. Yeah, it's definitely a powerhouse. And then after all they did without Kyrie and, and Hayward uh, and not in the lineup going all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals, they're coming with like a, a chip on their shoulder, very confident, Got a deep team, a deep bench with Rozier, Smart, uh, the Morris twins. Um, they, 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 they're deep, man. I, I got them if I, you know, going to win the East. I think it's, it, it, if they don't win the East, it's it's, uh, it's a failure. I don't know who you're going to blame. But yeah, it's a failure. The East. It's a failure. It's definitely a failure. So I just think they're going to be ready. Um, you know, they got a lot of, like I said, a lot of, and then you, you got to give credit. Everybody's not giving credit. They give them credit. But Brad Stevens is a hell of a coach, you know, coming from a college game and understanding the pulse of the NBA and understanding the players. And he has a um, a, a certain aura about him, you know, um, on the sidelines. Seems like his, his, his players play extremely hard for him, and they bought into bought into a system. So he he's a very uh, uh, a, a very good pro coach. Have you ever met Brad? No, I never met him. I assume you'd probably like to just as a guy that, and we'll talk more about this later more extensively, but as a guy that's done a little bit of coaching, you're coaching right now, it's as you try and you know build up, obviously, your knowledge base, your skill set. Brad talks about it all the time, that he likes to meet coaches from all levels to because there's there's always someone that he can pick something from. You know, It's not like he's just he's a snob about it and just wants to hang out with the, the Coach K's and Greg Popovich's of the world. He wants to hang out with everybody and try and learn. Are, are you the same kind of sponge mentality? Absolutely. I watched like games of last year with him. As a matter of fact, I got a couple of plays from him that we use and we call Boston. You know, oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I, I love his sets. I watch his you know, out-of-bound schemes. I, I, I watch everything. You know, I try to, you know, um, get as much as information as possible. I was a great player, but coaching 
is a lot different. You know, it took time. I, I, I was seven years into travel basketball, doing camps, doing clinics. But now, you know, I'm, I'm you know, we learn something new every day. I, I, I need to lean on everybody. I'm now the head coach of Fisk University in Tennessee. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, NAIA school, and um, I'm learning as as I as I go to be a coach. And um, it's a process, but uh, I love being in the gym. I love challenging myself to get my team to be successful and put my players in a, in spots where they could be successful. And if I could do that, we'll win. And to get guys to buy in and play extremely hard for you, that's the ultimate goal. See, I think that's the great thing about Brad, and I'm sure you'd agree, is that he he's renowned. You hear it from his former players all the time, Evan Turner and and others who have gone on to play elsewhere, that that Brad is just, he's so good, maybe one of the best in the league, if not the best, at putting guys in a position to succeed. That, you know, he's, he's not going to let your weaknesses get exploited because you're only going to be asked to do the things that you're good at. So that in mind and the depth of this roster, how much pressure are they facing? they got a lot of pressure. Especially playing in the um, the uh, the best sports city, uh, those people, fans right now is like you should they like they itch it, man, because they know right now they should be winning the Eastern Conference Final yeah. and they got a chance to win the championship. So no, they got. So I don't care what they say, they got pressure on them. You know, after having a big year they had last year with, hmm. with without two of their best guys, so no, it's going to be some pressure. You think these guys can compete with the Warriors, as as everyone in Boston's locker room obviously believes? I think so. It's just a game. It's seven games. They they can play small ball, and, that, and with the lineups they that they have, they can they can play small ball. But we will have to see, um, you know, how that lines up, and you know, then, then you got to look at eighty two games. Everything got to line up for you to win a championship. And the number one thing is injuries. You you, you, you gotta you know you gotta be able to fight off, and, and I think with Boston team, they can fight off because they're deep, but but not uh, not a um, uh, an injury to some of their top players for the season. But little ankles here, where they mm. got to be out two three weeks and all that. I think they can hold it together because they got a deep team. But you got to worry about injuries, and um, and that's just in every sport to win a championship. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of luck sometimes. So you've weighed in on Kyrie Irving's future. It's actually how we got together here, the power of social media, which is awesome. You tweeted at me. You wrote, Boston's the best sports city and the team he has around him. Great coach. They should and are willing to give him lots of bags. Why leave? You think he's staying put? <laughs> yeah, he's staying, man. I would, I don't, I'm saying he's staying, but come on, man. If I'm in his boat, if I'm him, <laughs> point guard, the talent around me, the coach on the sideline in Boston, and ex- I could get all you know all the money that I like you know the contract that doesn't make sense it doesn't it doesn't make sense I'm staying so what do you think took Kyrie so long to start talking about a future in Boston because all summer he kind of ducked those questions he almost seemed to get annoyed by it when he was doing the Uncle Drew press tour didn't want to get into it at all media day arrives in the days since and he, the, the guy's shouting from the mountaintops about having his number retired in the garden rafters, that this is the place for him, that he'd be, in, in his words, we're pretty effing good here. Why Why would I leave? Why would I go? So what do you think? I'm not even sure his mentality changed necessarily, but why the about face in, in his approach? I think that, I think it was always there. I think we as athletes, especially star athletes, we love the attention. We love to have people on the edge of their seat not knowing what we're going to do. And um, I just think it's all about that. 
you come on, I, you know, you, you know, you got to keep. You can't just say, "Hey, I'm I'm staying right away." You got to keep the suspense, and <laughs> um, you know, you got to keep the suspense. But I, I I can't see him going elsewhere for what with that young talent talented group around him as a point guard. You need a supporting cast, and uh, and then on top of that, the way the coach. You know, have those guys, you know, uh, working and everything. It's just a great situation to be in. Well, you know, one theory I thought was actually pretty good that people were floating on social media, and I hadn't even quite thought about it at the time, was that, you know, when he started getting those questions late June, I think, and it was just ahead of the start of free agency, and there was a little bit of noise, and I don't think it was anything more than noise, but there was a little bit of conversation about, boy, is is LeBron James going to be maybe interested in Boston? Should the Celtics try and trade for him? And I think Kyrie, so not that he would say this, but he so passionately does not want to play with LeBron anymore that, of course, he doesn't want to say when all of that's going on, like, yeah, I want to be here forever, and then they go out and trade for LeBron, and it's, well, no, I, I would like to leave, actually. I've I've done this. I I don't need to do it again. No, I would tell. I would say to myself, "Boy, you better not trade for LeBron. That would be that, that. That's not even that's stupid. All the young talent they got, LeBron got. got the, he's the alpha man. He has to. He dominates the ball a lot. Boston is right. They got young Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and you know Rozier, Kyrie. They move the ball. They play very good defense. You know, it's it, you know when you're playing with LeBron, it, it, it changes everything. And I think a player like Kyrie didn't want that no more. You know, he wants to be the guy where he can make the plays, and um, you know, have other players to make the plays with the ball move, you know, and bodies move, and makes the game a lot easier. I personally, just as a fan of the game, and I'm curious as to your perspective as a guy that played it at the highest level, obviously, not only in the highest league, but you're one of the greats in terms of point guards that this league has seen. Does Kyrie Irving have the best handle in league history? Because I just fawn over the thing. Yeah, I, I, I said by far. He had it last year by far. But then I look at some of these other guys that, that he don't get no love. As, uh, Jamal Crawford handle was sick. Yeah. You know, he has to be in there. But Kyrie, Kyrie Irving, Jamal Crawford, Stephen Curry, um, it, uh, these guys can handle the ball. Chris Paul, still veteran, still doing it for after so many years. He has handled. Uh, James Harden handle is tight. So we we in glory days of the guards. Damon Lillard and uh, Russell Westbrook. So it's, it's, I'm a fan now, but it's some great point guards in the league. Yeah, I was just going to ask you if you thought we were in the golden age of point guards. Clearly you do, and I think that is pretty obvious to people that watch on a regular basis. Take me back through time, though. I mean, su- suppose that you're born a different era, you're playing today. How would you do? I'd do very well. I'd probably average, you know, with my lead, I think my career average is 13, 14, 7 assists around there. I definitely would be about, t- I'd definitely be 2010. Hmm. Real and easy, you know, because it's softball right now. They, you, can't, you can't touch nobody to lead. So, you know, and and I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking it, but, you know, everything has to change. The era 90s, it was hard on the eyes sometimes. You know, 80 to 85 games, 79 and 70. They wanted fan friendly, entertaining, run up and down. A lot of great young athletes out here, so it's very entertaining. When we played, it was more defensive-minded, half-court, you know, uh, bump and grind. It was tough. How would you feel well, about um, going out taking eight, nine, ten threes a game? Man, I just let them go. You know, what I'm <laughs> just let them go. <laughs> Coaches wouldn't mind because they think the three is the three. Right. You know, we couldn't shoot it. We had to come down and drop it in, and then cut and move. 
and, and the mid the mid range game I think is very important. We gotta we got we got off of that. It's either a three or a layup, and I just think the mid range game is very important to, to basketball. Regardless, sets up everything else also. Right. By getting in that lane. What's the toughest thing about being a young player in this league and and having so much to juggle? You know, you're working on improving different areas, keeping up with new plays and techniques, having to build up your your strength, your core strength, your muscle, all of it. Basically, I mean, what are Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown going through as as Tatum enters year two and Brown enters year three? No, I think those type of guys, they get it early. It depends on your foundation and what you're obsessed with. And you're upset with, obsessed with basketball, getting better and being the best, then you work out all summer long and you take care of yourself. You don't do drugs. You don't live the life. You don't live the lifestyle. You just zeroed in on being the best basketball player you can be and take care of your body. A lot of Some guys come in and they want to burn the candle on both ends. You want a light, nightlife. You, sometimes you let the lifestyle take over you. And that's where, you know, you, you fall victim to of getting better. And, um, no, those guys are real hungry, you know, um, and they work, you know, in the off season. And that's when you get better, in the off season, because the pros is 82 games. Not that many practices. You got you to you gotta, you gotta, uh, police yourself. You, got, you know, nowadays guys live with their trainers, travel, and you got to take care of your body and uh, got to get your reps up for shooting and, Take care of yourself. A lot of guys of this era are doing it better than I think we did it in the 90s. Especially, like, thinking about, and we'll get deeper into your specific story, but just to stay a little broad for this moment, you know, you entered the league as as the youngest player in the league. You were, what, 20 years old when when yeah. you came in. And, you know, Tatum, he was 19. Obviously, yeah. we've, we've seen some younger guys come in, even, even with – as rules about draft eligibility and all that have evolved over time. But do you just have to sort of block everything else out and have that singular focus on basketball? Because it's not like Tatum isn't dealing with the same temptations and everything that, that you and everybody else deals with. Yeah, I think your foundation, man, you're supporting people that are around you. The mother, your, if you if you come from a, a family of that structure, that foundation is tight, a mother and father, um, just come in the game and have the same values, you know, that you came in with, your morals. Sometimes guys come in and they change their whole morals. And then that's the, then that's they fall victim. Well, just say, hey, man, I come to play basketball and get better and, and, and just, you know, uh, work. And some guys do. Jason Tatum, in his situation, it was great for him. It was a blessing in disguise when Hayward, where Gordon went down. And, I, and I'm not saying that the injury – far as a whole of team could have hurt their chances of getting to the finals. But it helped Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum to develop quicker. He had to come in the lead. He got those minutes that he probably wouldn't have gotten if Hayward wouldn't have got injured. So it made him learn on the job a lot quicker and gave him, and he just learned, and the coaches, they, they played him. A lot of rookies come in the game. They don't get thrown in the fire, and they they in and out of the lineup. They don't play a lot, and, you know, they just don't find their way. But in his case, he was able to really um, play a lot of minutes, play for a good coach, and and really develop quicker than if he would have – 
if uh, Gordon would have uh, been able to play. One more quick break to tell you today's show also brought to you by Boston Barber and Tattoo Company. Every neighborhood has a heartbeat, a place that represents the cultural epicenter of the area at its core. In Boston's historic North End, that place is Boston Barber and Tattoo Company. Boston Barber and Tattoo Company has become home to A-list Boston celebrities like Gordon Hayward, Brad Marchand, and, of course, Aaron Baines. Boston Barber and Tattoo is more than just Boston's most well-known corner barber shop. It's also a tourist attraction for the hundreds of thousands of people who visit the North End throughout the year. Boston Barber and Tattoo, a North End landmark, located at 113 Salem Street. All right, back to the show. So I keep, uh, you know, kind of alluding to you and your story. Let's get into it a little bit. The uh, first off, the Chibs nickname. I know it's from your mom, but what's it mean? Nothing. It's just very <laughs> dear. It's very dear to me and my mother. My mother, when I was born, five days old, when they brought her in, brought me in to, you know, to see her. She, my mouth was full. When she was eating, she said cheeks. She said Chibs, and it just hmm. stuck with it. So I didn't know my name was Kenneth. Until the first day of kindergarten, my, mother, <laughs> my family, my everybody in the neighborhood, New York, left right, everybody called me Chibs. C H I B B S. It just stuck with me, so it's really dear to me, you know, because my mother loved it. And when I did something good, and and uh, she was proud of me or whatever, she said, "Look at Mr. Chibs." Hmm. So I named my documentary uh, Mr. Chibs. Yeah, and that documentary, I mean, your story's incredible. As you said, it's called Mr. Chibs, about your rise to the NBA after so much acclaim, beginning when, you know, you're barely a teen, you're an NYC legend, you go off to Georgia Tech, you go to the Final Four, second overall pick by the Nets in 91, youngest player in the league, like I said, an all-star, 60 million bucks in career earnings. But this feature really is is so compelling because it's not – the highlights so much. You know, it, it chronicles the the downfalls of being a pro athlete, the challenges that you've faced since in retirement. I mean, all the money gone. What is it? Seven children, eight children? Yeah. Four or five different women, is it? Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, your your mom, who we just mentioned, I mean, she tragically passed back in 2005. You, you lost a coaching position after a DUI. That led to a midlife crisis, depression. You revealed that you were sexually abused as a child as well. You said in the documentary that the measurement of a person is when things don't go right, how you act. You know, you've called yourself a strong term, you know, a, a walking mistake. How'd you set yourself back on the right path after finding so much yeah. clarity in your life? Yeah, I was real with myself. I was looking in the mirror and I just wanted to, you know, be a better person. So you just got to work, man. I have kids to live for. I have a, a beautiful wife. Um, you know, all the obstacles that I overcame. Um, I, I Like I said, man, I just wanted to sacrifice myself to help others. But everybody has a story. You know, there are people out there have worse stories than I have, but they're ashamed or embarrassed to tell their stories. So I just went and, uh, you know, paid it forward. And, um, you know, I, I lost a lot of money, but I also saved money where I'm not, I wasn't dead broke. I was able to uh, live a uh, live a uh, comfortable life with my family down in Florida, my wife, my son, and my daughter. And uh, I have eight kids, uh, two failed marriages, eight kids. I've took care of all my kids. I've been I've been in their lives. So you know, I, I'm trying to work on that now to stay in their lives and be a better father, be a better husband, be a better friend. You know, trying to become a better coach. So. Life has been great. You know, I think we all always cry. You know, some people cry and uh, they cry and complain and 
fantastic or about their mishaps. I just thank God, you know, for my blessings, man. I'll, I'll count my blessings. Because I, I, a kid from Left Rack City, you know, um, snotty-nosed kid, about 165 <laughs> pounds, played, who would have thunk it, you know, played in the league 14 years, two-time, you know, two, I played two years at Georgia Tech All-American, four, four-time four All-American, high school All-American, one and only two that did it, me and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in high school. I, I, man, I can't complain, man. You know, God has been good to me. So, and right now, I'm living the best life right now. You know, I'm coaching at a, a university and mentoring these young men and just, you know, trying to do the right thing. That's all. What was rock bottom? You know, what was the moment where you were at your worst, where, where you, you just hit that tipping point where you said, enough, I just, I got to change things? I, I don't really know if I was on the rock bottom. I just, I just, I guess I just wanted to be able to be, you know, productive with my life every day. Probably could have just stayed, you know, doing what I was doing, staying home. My wife was working. I was taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. But I just want to be productive. I want to be giving back. And I love being in the gym. And I love, uh, you know, I play through, you know, I love basketball. So I play through my team at this moment. You know what I mean? Makes me feel good when mm-hmm. they work and they getting better together. So I just wanted to be doing something, man. I wanted to be active. I wanted to feel that, um, that I'm giving back, that um, that I'm helping, you know what I mean? And I wasn't doing that. But um, my, my, my bad point, I, I don't know. You know, I think I, I think you could get comfortable. I think, I, and that's what I was worried about. I was just getting comfortable with my life where I was at down in Florida. And I said, man, I'm too comfortable. I got to hmm. do something. How's your life further changed in the years since releasing the documentary and, and making your full history so public? Yeah, I just wanted to be vanilla. Um, I didn't want to be vanilla. A lot of these uh, documentaries be so, you know, blah, blah, blah. They don't tell the truth or, or they don't come with all of it. I just let it out. I'm an open book. I've been, a, I've been an open book my whole life. Since 11 years old, I've been getting publicity and being in the, the mm-hmm. limelight. So I just say, hey, you know, let me, um, you know, and then all the world, all the stuff that was going on in the world, all this um, negativity. I said, man, I got a voice. I've, I've been on a certain stage. Let me let me help somebody, and that's what I was in for. It wasn't about the money; it was just about helping, helping others. You know what I mean? And maybe going down the same path that I was going. That they see a documentary, they see me, and I've been through it. Like, wow, he's done it. He could come back and do all of this. Maybe I could get over it. So that's basically what it was. It was me watching and seeing all the bad news on television and mm-hmm. seeing everybody going through. I said, man, I got it tell my story but i gotta tell it the real way and just you know sacrifice myself to help others that's basically what i did well and i heard you say in one of those interviews going back to when the documentary was released that your wife said to you listen if if you're doing this you got to go all in you know you can't sugarcoat or anything like that as as you said you gotta you gotta dive fully in and let everyone know what's going on with you was was it difficult it had just to get over the hump a little bit yeah, it was difficult because I wasn't sure. I sat on it for about a month or two before I said, okay, let's do it. Let's shadow with Joe Campbell, the director, shadowed me for about four or five years. So, mm. you know, it was it was interesting. But um, like I, that's all I'm saying, you know, when you um, when you when you accept your when you announce your flaws, they can't use them against you. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, this is why. What, what's going on? I'm trying to get better. If you want to, you know, criticize and downplay somebody that's trying to get better, 
and you got issues. <laughs> so that was, I was just trying to, you know, get, you know, better myself and grow. Well, and like you said, you're the head coach at Fist now, and is it is this kind of I don't know, for lack of a better term, part of your resurrection? You know, you've you've spoken about God's plan. Is this your way of of serving two masters, meaning being around basketball and also mentoring kids so they don't make some of the same mistakes? Exactly. You know what I mean? I think one of the um, biggest things that I did accomplish, I went back to college and got my bachelor's after 20-something years. I got my bachelor's in 2010 at St. Thomas University down in Miami. Mm -hmm. I took my two years at Georgia Tech that I did. That's 50 credits. And I got my my bachelor's. So it's definitely um, a sign. And um, he's not finished with me. I'm very spiritual. I'm not religious. But God is not finished with me. I, you know, just because I played basketball for so many years and child prodigy and you know, my talent was to play basketball. But now I got to pay it forward. And a new chapter in my life. This is a life-changing moment. You know, coaching at a university is holds a lot of responsibility. And um, just uh, and I, I take one day at a time with it. It's going to be a challenge. Um, but, you know, I think this was my calling. And I got to make the best out of it. But um, it's all um, it's all God's plan. I, you know, the way my life been going. It's a slogan as my documentary is. You see it. The slogan is basketball is easy, life is hard. Because mm. basketball been easy my whole life. Basketball was never a problem. It, <laughs> it was other things, you know, other than basketball. So you know, it's a, my life has been great, man. I, I can't complain about it. I really can't. Your mom saw you at your best as an athlete. She. I'm guessing, based on everything you've said, probably saw you at your worst on a personal level. You know, she's been gone 13 years now. You're doing great. What would she say about where things stand for you now? Yeah, she wanted me to change my life, you know, but she passed away 2005. And um, I thought that, thought about it and said, damn, I got to do make some changes. I got to do the right thing. My mother, she, she, she's smiling down on me. She's pretty happy that I'm giving back and, um, and I've changed my um my way of living but if every five years they say it's changing your life it's 30 35 40 45 mm-hmm. if, if you if you haven't changed in your sometime in your life if you're still you 50 years old still doing what you did at 24 you got problems <laughs> you gotta get some help you know what i'm saying so you know that's just it man we all gonna make mistakes and we all gonna live a certain way certain ages but after a while you just gotta you know grow up you know, and that's what I'm trying to do and I'm doing. And, hey, we are all a work in progress, man. It takes time. You know what I mean? I, it takes time. But, um, you know, it, 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 right now I'm on the right path. And um, I always say everybody's path, everybody's path is different. And this is my path he's given me. Well, Kenny Anderson, like I said, you know, it was, and I, I'm not just saying it, you know, my Later high school years, early college years, that was when you were in Boston. I thoroughly enjoyed watching you play. Obviously, like everyone around here, loved that run to the Eastern Conference Finals. And now all these years later, getting a chance to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. It's been a great thrill for me, for the audience as well, and I appreciate you taking the time. All right, man. Thank you. Really great stuff from Kenny Anderson. I'm thrilled he came on, and that uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did because just getting to talk to him and take a walk down memory lane from that era of Celtics basketball, which was not too long ago, but is so wildly different than where we are now and getting to know him better on a personal level, clearly, and uh, just listening to him open up and let us all in, let us behind the curtain. You don't experience that a lot in today's league, more so 
than you have even a few years ago, guys like Kevin Love and others coming out about their depression. So you do experience it much more now than you used to. But to that level that we just got into with Kenny is not commonplace at all. And sometimes it takes until after a guy retires to really open up. And so really interesting, I thought. But uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks to you for joining us. we got to get out of here. Episode 282 featuring former Celtics guard Kenny Anderson is brought to you by Calm Bomb. Right now, my listeners, for a limited time, can get Calm Bombs at a huge discount by going to their website, buybombshelpmoms.com, and clicking on the Indiegogo page. Thanks also to Boston Barber, and thanks to everyone at CLNS. Nick, Larry, Evan, John, everyone, most especially you. Without you, there's no show. Hit me up on Twitter, at Adam M. Kaufman. We'll chat, we'll debate, we'll do it all as the regular season rapidly approaches, as I said, just a couple weeks away. And subscribe. Subscribe on iTunes because Gino would want you to. Isn't that right, Gino? 